This is the Gathering Ottawa's Message Podcast, and this week we've got another message from our Acts of the Apostles series. For information about us, check out thegatheringottawa.com. To get connected, email info at thegatheringottawa.com. And just know that at The Gathering, we exist to connect people to the love of Jesus. So let's get right to it. a book of the Bible is you come across texts like the one that we're going to be talking through this morning. Passages, texts that I would probably never choose (laughs) to preach from if I uh, were to just be picking a text of my own. It's not really um, a good text, right, for a preacher to tell a story about a guy dying while he's preaching because he fell asleep. Like, that's not something typically preachers would want to focus on. But here we are. I looked at the text, and I was like, really, God? Like, maybe I can just, you know, do all of Acts 20, you know? But as I got into studying this text, I was like, wow, there's actually a surprising uh, amount of things, I think, in this passage that God might want to use to speak to us here this morning. So, today we are looking at Acts 20, verses 1 through to 12, as the Apostle Paul continues on through his third missionary trip. And this is a passage that includes that story that was just read for us about Eutychus falling asleep and dying during church, along with some other interesting details as well, some other verses with some other details around Paul's trip. But let me ask you a question as we open things up. And be honest with me. Have you ever fallen asleep in church? Not this church, right? But another church, right? You ever fallen asleep while the pastor was droning on and on and on. I have, thankfully not while I was preaching. That would be a little weird if I just fell asleep in the middle of my sermon, but I have fallen asleep in church. I do remember, related to that, Kim and I years ago were actually at a wedding, Catholic wedding, big Italian Catholic wedding, and the priest performing the ceremony, I don't know how old he was. He looked like he was 90. Uh, He might have been. He literally fell asleep in the middle of the vows. Like, he's repeat after me. She's like, I, you know, so-and-so give myself. And he's like, like and then she had to <laughs> nudge him awake. It was the best wedding ever. I loved it. Have not fallen asleep in a wedding or during a sermon, my sermon anyway, but I have fallen asleep in church before, that is for sure. I remember when I was 16, 17 years old, Sunday morning at church, recovering from whatever it was I had been up to the night before, um, falling asleep while my dad, I'm a son of a preacher, while my dad was preaching. And I'm in the second row, and we had chairs just like this. started to nod off while dad was preaching. And then, I don't know if you ever had this happen, where you're falling asleep and your head starts to fall, and you simultaneously have a dream where you think that you're, like, falling off of a cliff. Has anyone had that feeling as you're nodding off? happened to me in church. I thought I was falling off a cliff, and then I woke up yelling and kicked the chair in front of me. I went flying into the organ that was right there in the front and made quite the scene. My dad stopped in the middle of the sermon. He just looked at me like if looks get killed. You know, I could tell, you know, he was like, do I blast him in front of the whole congregation? Do I make a bigger scene out of this or what? He just looked at me with that look, and I knew I was in trouble when I got home, when we got home later that day, which I was. So I I know what it is to fall asleep in church. I've done it. I've been there before. 
In our story here this morning in our text, we see a story about a young man named Eutychus who fell asleep during church and ended up falling to his death as a result, which we'll get to in just a moment. We'll look at that story. But before we get to that story, in the first six verses of Acts 20, we actually see Luke, the author of Acts, summarizing Paul's travel situation, how it was he got to the place where this church is located in the first place and where this young man lived and ended up falling out of the window and, and dying from. I want to look at those six verses with you because I think there's some interesting detail in here. We're in verse 1 of Acts 20. We read this. When the uproar was over, the uproar in Ephesus, if you were with us last week, we looked at that story as a riot broke out in, uh, in Ephesus there. When the uproar was over, Paul sent for the believers there in Ephesus and encouraged them. Then he said goodbye and left for Macedonia, about three, 400 kilometers away. While there, he encouraged the believers, or some other translations say, he spoke many words of encouragement, words from the word, from scripture. He encouraged them not just like, hey, keep going, but actually taught God's word to them. That's what in the Greek we see happening there. He spoke many words of encouragement in all the towns he passed through along the way, stopping likely at all the different uh, towns and cities where he had started churches, places like Thessalonica and Berea and, and Philippi, churches that he had helped to get started up. He encouraged them from the scriptures, which I think actually just shows us a little bit of Paul's pastoral heart for his people. A lot of people give Paul, the Apostle Paul, a bit of a bad rap as being just this heartless evangelist apostle who doesn't really care about people. He just starts things and leaves and starts another thing and then leaves and then writes mean letters to people, blasting them for their bad behavior and all this kind of stuff. Some people think that way about the Apostle Paul, but it's not true. He was as much a pastor as he was a missionary or an evangelist or an apostle. He had a shepherding heart. He loved the people of God, the churches that he helped to start. We see some of that in these opening verses. Continuing on. Then he traveled down to Greece, almost certainly to the city of Corinth, where he had been before, where he stayed, Luke tells us, for three months. This, by the way, after Paul had already now written them four letters. We have two of them in the New Testament, First and Second Corinthians, but there are actually at least four letters that he wrote to them. Difficult letters, where he would call out some different ethical and theological issues that were kind of out of whack there in the church. He had a lot to say to this Corinthian church, as Corinth was known to be, as we've talked about previously, a pretty interesting town, we'll say. And so no doubt, as he spent three months in Corinth, he had lots to discuss with the leadership of those churches, going over the letters that he had written to them and talking through the various issues there. He was preparing to sail back to Syria when he discovered a plot by some Jews against his life, which just seems to happen everywhere he goes, whether it's the Jewish people wanting to kill him or the Romans or whoever. Like, someone's always trying to get to Paul. Someone's always trying to kill him. So there he is in Corinth, another plot against his life. And so he decided to return back, go back north through Macedonia, to go back the way that he had just come. Then look at this. This is interesting. These are some details that unless you're doing some study in the scriptures, you just kind of miss. But I found them, I found these details kind of cool. Verse 4. Several men were traveling with him, as Paul rarely traveled alone. He always did ministry in community with others. 
And then Luke lists for us some of the names. There was Sopater, son of Pyrrhus, from Berea. And then look at these two names. Aristocharus and Secondus from Thessalonica. Now again, it's easier, it's easier to read this and just have your eyes glaze over and not pay attention to this. But when you do some study, what you discover is that Aristocharus' name, which I just butchered, that's not how you say it, but you know what I'm saying when I say it, his name was connected with aristocracy. So a ruling class city, or a, a family rather, right? He came from a wealthy, powerful family. But then Secondus was a common name actually for a slave. It literally means second, as slaves were often not called by their true names, but by their rank, right? With the first-ranking slave being called primus, and the second one being called secondus. So here you have a very rich and powerful man, in this aristocracist guy, and then you have secondus together forming a community. as They're on mission together, advancing the purposes of God uh, with Paul. Isn't that kind of cool? This is a picture, I think, of the church and of the kingdom of God, where you have different classes of people, rich, poor, oppressed, oppressor even, coming together as one for the sake of the mission and purposes of God. We see this as well as Jesus selected his own disciples, right? The twelve, where he selects Matthew, a hated tax collector, and Peter, and then the other Simon as well, who was a zealot and would have like wanted to kill people like Matthew. And he says, hey guys, let's, let's form a community together and figure out how to get along, how to love each other, how to advance God's purposes in the world. It's a picture of the church. You got different political views, different socioeconomic statuses represented. You've got people from all different varieties and so on. And, and God says to us, guys, you got to figure out how to be the church even though you're so different. It's a beautiful picture here of the kingdom of God, even amongst Paul's missionary group. We continue reading. We see more names. Gaius and Derby, Timothy, who we know, and Tychius and Trompimus, however you say that, from the province of Asia. They went ahead and waited for us, Luke says, at Troas, as Luke, who is the author of Acts, is now back in the mix, right? He's starting to use us language. He's with this group as well. He met up with them along the way somewhere there. Verse 6. After the Passover ended, we boarded a ship at Philippi in Macedonia, and five days later joined them in Troas, where we stayed for a week. Troas, which is where this story now with Eutychus falling out the window and dying takes place. It takes place during this quick little one-week visit by Paul and his crew to this little city known as Troas. That's how Paul ended up in Troas. Let's look now at this story. This fun story about this young man falling to his death. <laughs> Verse 7. On the first day of the week, we gathered with the local believers to share in the Lord's Supper. Now here, again, is another verse. It's just really easy to skip over and to just, you know, you just want to get to the Eutychus story. That's the fun story, but there's a lot actually happening in this verse. Some interesting details, important uh, comments that Luke makes here about the church. Worth paying attention to. First, he says, on the first day of the week, we gathered for church with the local believers to share in the Lord's Supper. It's interesting. I didn't know this until studying this passage here more deeply this week. Did you know that this is the very first clear reference in the New Testament 
of the early church meeting on a Sunday for worship as opposed to Saturday, Sabbath Saturday. The first clear reference in the entire New Testament. You know, sometimes I'm asked, maybe you've wondered this, right? Like, why do Christians worship on Sundays when in the Old Testament it's the Saturday, the Sabbath, that is set apart as holy? When did this change? Why did this change? Why do we do this? Is it just because we're not Jewish? Is that why it is? The answer to why it is that we've changed, or when we changed, it changed with the early church in the book of Acts. As they transitioned from worshiping on Saturday, on the Sabbath, to worshiping on Sundays. Resurrection Sunday in people's homes and in other common places as well. Eventually even referring to Sundays as the Lord's Day. You ever heard that term used in reference to Sunday, the Lord's Day? I used it earlier if you caught it. That's the reference. It's used once in the entire New Testament, Revelation 1, verse 10, by the Apostle John, to refer to Sunday as the Lord's Day. It's believed that that was a common term when dis, you know, discussing Sundays or referring to Sundays. It's called the Lord's Day. Now, there's a few reasons for this change. I just find this interesting, so I'll just share this with you. I think it's helpful to know. Why did the church make the change? Well, one reason was to signify the change from the Old Covenant, Old Jewish Covenant, to the New Covenant, Right? Where in the Old Covenant, before Jesus, the Sabbath was set apart as holy. But in the New Covenant reality, because of Jesus, every day is now set apart as holy, in a sense. As every day, now because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross and in rising again, in every single day we can rest from our striving and our earning and our good works and can rest in what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. Paul talks about this actually in Romans 14, uh, 14, where he says that every day is alike. Every day is holy. Some people still practice the Sabbath, that's fine, but every day is holy for the follower of Jesus, not just the Sabbath. Another reason the church made this change was very practical in nature. Now it's because many of the early Christians, they had Jewish roots, right? And so they would still practice the Sabbath. They'd attend Sabbath worship at the synagogue on Saturday with family and friends, maybe even wanting to share Jesus with them. And then they could still do that, but then also worship with their church family on Sunday. So it was a practical consideration as they moved from Saturday worship to Sunday. But the most uh, significant reason for the change was because of what Sunday, of course, represents the followers of Jesus, right? Resurrection, the day the Lord Jesus rose from the dead, the defining event of Christianity. Right? As we gather on Sundays, it's not just because it's a day off, it's because it represents Easter. It represents what Jesus did for us on the cross and in rising again. In some ways, you could say that every Sunday is Easter Sunday. Because every Sunday, we're commemorating the resurrection of Jesus together as we gather to worship the risen Christ together as a community of faith. These are some of the reasons why the church made the shift from Saturday to Sunday for worship doesn't mean that every church has to meet on Sunday. There are denominations and other churches that meet. Other, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a rule. It's just why that change was made, which I find kind of cool. But now look as well at what the early church did as they gathered. We look at why they gathered on Sundays, but look at what they did. This is interesting as well. On the first day of the week, we gathered with local believers to what? To share in the Lord's Supper, Luke tells us. 
which is actually what we did last Sunday, right? As we came to the Lord's table, we took communion together. Other denominations call this the Eucharist, where you take the bread, the juice, or the wine. If you're really high church, if you've got a bigger budget for communion in your, <laughs> your church, right? Take the bread and the juice, the wine, to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. That's what they did as they gathered. Not that they did it every time that they gathered, but they did it often, just as we do. We try to do it at least once a month, if not twice a month. Another thing they did, Luke tells us, they taught from the scriptures. Paul was preaching to them, Luke tells us. And since he was leaving the next day, he kept talking until midnight. As they gathered, they took the Lord's Supper together, but also they opened the scriptures together. And Paul preached for apparently quite a long time from the scriptures. They paid attention to what the scriptures were saying, and they oriented themselves around God's word, what it was that God was wanting to say to them, which is what we do every Sunday as well, right? You know, preaching in recent years has got a little bit of a bad rap. There's some churches that say it's not, you shouldn't, ha- you shouldn't preach more than 10 minutes. You know, just do little short homilies, come to the Lord's Supper, that's what matters most, and preaching's not as important. It's not what we see in Scripture. Not just here, but in other places. Preaching is a big deal. Preaching God's Word is an important aspect of what it is to be a part of a church, to gather together as God's people. That's why we open God's Word every Sunday and do what we're doing here. Not just hearing my opinions or my thoughts about this issue or that issue or the other issue, but actually opening God's Word and learning from it together. It's what they did as they gathered. Those are two of the things they did as they gathered, as we see in this passage, right? Lord's Supper, opening the Scriptures together. Other things they likely did, we see throughout the rest of the book of Acts, they probably sang together as well, like we did together here this morning, sang some hymns in their case. They probably prayed together. We see examples of that in the New Testament as well. They probably engaged in some koinonia, some fellowship. Maybe they had some treats from Costco at the back of the room and coffee, a coffee table in the back. It's kind of cool, right? When you think about their gathering, different culture, different time, all of that, but they did the same things that we do today, that the church has always done. You sing songs together, you pray together, you open the scriptures together, you spend time together in community. It's not rocket science, right? But it's what the church has done for 2,000 years as they've gathered. It's what we see them doing in the book of Acts, which I think is kind of, kind of cool. A lot of people say, oh, we're nothing like the early church. I don't know what they mean. Like, we're not as maybe radically committed and the way that they lived their life. But when you look at what the church did as they gathered, it's actually not that different functionally today. One thing that was different here, though, was the length of Paul's sermon. <laughs> right? With Luke saying that he kept talking or preaching until midnight, which I think we can all agree is a pretty long time to preach, right? They've been meeting together, not since the morning, like we do, 10.30 on Sundays. They probably started meeting at around sundown after the workday. Sunday was a workday in this context, so they would have worked and then gone to church at sundown at 7 or 8 p.m., which means maybe they sang some songs, prayed some prayers together. Paul probably started preaching, let's say, around 9 o'clock, and he'd been preaching for like three hours. Man, like I get, people give me a hard time, like, oh, that was 45 minutes, Pastor. Like, come on, calm down. I don't know. When I look at this, I'm like, if you really want to be biblical about it, I think we see some biblical precedent here for me just to continue on and on and on, right? Until at least dinner. 
I think I think I'm just going to do it to spite you, Rebecca. No, preached for hours. Paul did, or Luke did. No, Paul did. Luke says that Paul did. Verse eight. Now, the upstairs room where we met was lighted with many flickering lamps. As Paul spoke on and on, which as an aside, you could almost hear Luke's kind of snarkiness in, in the comments, right? Like, he preached until midnight, and then he went on and on. Like, you can almost hear him being annoyed about it. <laughs> As he preached on and on, a young man named Eutychus, sitting on the windowsill, became very drowsy. Finally, he fell asleep and dropped three stories to his death below. Now, this story, we'll unpack it in, in a moment, but I think we can all agree that the moral of the story is don't ever fall asleep while the pastor is preaching, or you might die. Like, it's in the Bible, right? Like, it's pretty, stay awake. It's pretty clear. I do uh, feel bad for Eutychus here, though, because, truthfully, people fall asleep in church all the time. Like, thousands, if not millions of people do this each and every Sunday around the world, right? Guaranteed, there's story after story after story, like the one I told you earlier about kicking the chair and making a big scene and things like this. People fall asleep all the time in church. And yet, this is the only thing we know about this young man, Eutychus. He made the cut. He made the scriptures. He probably got to heaven later. Like, did I, did I make the cut? Like, maybe he did amazing things in Troas and was like a leader in the church. Like, yeah, you're in the Bible. Let's see where, oh, it's the story of where you fell asleep in church like a chomp and then fell out the window and died, you idiot. Why were you sleeping in a window still? Not a very good place to sleep. Poor Eutychus, right? This is how we know this young man. But you really can't, I think, fault him for falling asleep. He probably had work that day. As I mentioned, it was a work day, manual labor out in the hot sun, right? It's hours past his bedtime. Remember, in this culture, they went to bed at sundown, right? Instead, they're all gathering for worship, for church. He's tired. He's tired. But he still comes to church. He could have easily been like, oh, it was a hard day at work. I'm exhausted. It was really hot out. I'm just going to go to bed. But he, goes, he still goes. He wants to open the scriptures. He wants to be with his church family. He wants to know Jesus. Then he comes to, to church, to the place where they were gathering, in this upper room, probably of some house, big house, third story up. Gets up there, and it's super hot, right? Because he rises, right? And they're up high. And there's all these people probably in the room. Like maybe there's 100, 200 people or so in that room. They're crammed in. And of course, people give off heat. And then on top of that, there's these flickering lamps, you know, giving off heat and that scent, that oil scent as well. The flickering lights as well, just kind of like, you know, make you a little bit tired, as they do for me. It's like watching TV to go to sleep, right? Like you got these flickering lamps all over. So Eutychus, he's hot, he's tired. He's like, I'm going to go sit by the windowsill and get some air. I'm just going to, I just lean up against this windowsill. Sits up there, nice fresh air coming in. And I can imagine him just kind of putting his head back against the wall. Which, for me, is prime sleeping position. Right? Like when Kim and I, if we watch a show at night, watch Netflix or something like that, I've got this lazy boy chair. If I recline and I put my head back, it does not matter what we're watching. I am falling asleep. And it could be 2 o'clock in the afternoon or 10 p.m. at night. Like, if I'm in that position, I am a goner. 
is Eutychus here. He's in prime sleeping position. He's tired. He's hot. It's flickering lights. Paul's going on and on. Like, there was no way this guy was not falling asleep, right? He was doomed. He was destined to fall asleep here in this moment. And he was probably not even the only one in the room. Like, there were probably others nodding off as well, but we only know about Eutychus. You know what, though? I, uh, I find this story strangely encouraging as a preacher. Um, it tells me that if people could fall asleep during the Apostle Paul's uh, preaching, then I probably shouldn't be surprised when they fall asleep during mine. Because <laughs> if it happens then, it's certainly going to happen now. In fact, I know it does, because I can see some of you nodding off sometimes while I'm preaching. I don't know how you do it in these uncomfortable blue chairs, but some of you find a way to do it. Now, honestly, um, years ago, as a young preacher, uh, pastor, it used to bug me a bit. When I would look out, I'd see someone's eyes rolling in the back of their head, their head nodding. Like, come on, you know how hard I work on this sermon? Do you not love Jesus at all? Do you not care about the scriptures? What's wrong with you? Those are the thoughts that I'm having while I'm simultaneously trying to be all like pastor up front, starting to feel really insecure, angry even a little bit inside. Like, what's going on with these people? But you know what? Over time, I noticed a couple things that kind of helped me deal with that in prayer before God. <laughs> noticed a couple things. The two or three people, the usual suspects who kind of would fall asleep during the church, I, I noticed some things about them. They were always the same people. Always the same people. I'm like, oh, I won't tell you their names, but so-and-so's here today. I can't wait to see him have a nap while I'm preaching. They were always the same people, and you know what? They were always men. Just saying. <laughs> On Mother's Day, women might be better than men. I'm just saying. They were always men. And they were also, also very incredibly busy people. Like, these were people who worked 70, 80 hours a week, like, nonstop, workaholics maybe even. And it was, frankly, it was a miracle that they made it to church that morning at all. Like, it was an honor, frankly, that they would come to church because they're so busy. They had so many things to be doing, but they'd be there at church at all. And so, honestly, I, I had to change my attitude about this a little bit. And I started thinking, like, well, if that's what they need, if they need a nap while they're at church, then that's not a terrible thing. At least they're here. At least they still showed up. Like, that's a big deal that they're still prioritizing the gathering of God's people for worship, even if maybe they're not able to keep their eyes open the whole time. At least they made it, you know? And for them, you know, maybe it's not the healthiest thing that, like, the moment you stop, like, if you, if you, every time you sit down for a second, if your brain's like, oh, you're not moving, that must mean it's time for bed. That's probably not healthy, right? You probably are too busy and need to make some changes in your life. That's probably what was happening with these people, but at least they made it. They made church a priority. I remember hearing a Charles Spurgeon quote years ago about sleeping in church. Because even Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers in the 1800s, he had people apparently fall asleep on him during church. He said, I'd rather have people come to church and get half a meal than stay away and get nothing. <laughs> so if you're feeling tired on Sunday mornings and you're like, I might fall asleep, during, it's okay, just come. Get at least half the meal. I'd rather you be here and be with God's people than stay away and get nothing. This is Eutychus here, though, right? Like, he made the decision, tired uh, as he was, to still come to church. Although, unfortunately for him, it wasn't just that he fell asleep, right? <laughs> so he fell asleep in a windowsill and then fell out the window 
to his death. To his death. Which, we joke about it, but because we know how it ends, right? With, with him being resuscitated miraculously back to life. But it, it would have been a tragedy. Like, imagine here on Sunday morning, people, I see Dave leaning up against the windowsill in the back. Like, imagine that pane of glass just shattered on him, and he fell through, and tragically, like, I don't know, was impaled or something, and just make this really violent and dramatic, uh, and he died in church. Like, that would be the worst service ever. That's what happened here. It's tragic, horrific. At the right place, we can go pray over you, yeah. I remember um, years ago, maybe some of you were here too, at this, uh, this concert, we took our kids to a Toby Mac concert at Woodvale Church. It was like six years ago. Kids were really into him at the time. And in the middle of the concert, I guess, someone had a heart attack. And they had to, you know, you know, get the first responders in there. The band stops playing, and they rush the guy out. And I remember Brendan was there. I think Brendan and his friend, like, were perched over the stairs and, like, watched in the lobby as they resuscitated this guy. Like, had to do chest compressions on him. And apparently, I think he died later in the hospital, either later that day or days later. It was tragic. And then it felt odd. We didn't know that he had died in the moment, of course. We didn't continue on with the music like nothing happened. It was a little odd, right, to have such a tragedy happen and then continue on like everything's okay. Pray a prayer for him and move on. It, it, it's kind of like that. Like that, That's sort of what happened here. A guy died during a church service. He fell from the window. So what did Paul do in response to this tragedy? Verse 10. Paul went down, bent over him took him into his arms. By the way, there's some overlap here with a similar story from 1 Kings 17 with Elijah and the widow's son. If you know that story, Paul follows suit. He does the same thing that he saw happen in the Old Testament with Elijah. He goes over to him, bends over to him, takes him up into his arms. And he says, don't worry, he's alive. Don't worry, he's alive. As God used Paul to supernaturally resuscitate Eutychus and to bring him back to life. An amazing story, right? Talk about Resurrection Sunday. <laughs> this is what happened, in a sense, on this Lord's Day as the church gathered. I love this, verse 11. It's just the way Luke says it, right? Then they went back upstairs, shared in the Lord's Supper, and ate together. Just continued on as if this was the most normal thing ever. Like, oh, a guy died, but Paul raised him to life again, you know, like every other day. And this just happens all the time. And then look at this. Luke says, Paul continued talking to them. He thought midnight was long until dawn. And then he left. Which I think is hilarious. Right? That Paul, after basically killing a guy by preaching so long, was like, I'm going to keep going. They need more. <laughs> they need more of this. More people need to die tonight, basically. <laughs> no, that's not what he was thinking. Priest till the crack of dawn. Till 5 or 6 a.m. It's like, good, he's alive. Now I can keep preaching. <laughs> now let's get back into God's word. Finally, verse 12. Meanwhile, as Paul continued preaching, the young man was taken home alive and well, and everyone was greatly relieved. As this worship service went from tragedy to triumph. That's the story of Eutychus falling asleep in church. As God used Paul in his pastoral heart to miraculously raise him from the dead. 
So what do we do then with this story? Aside from coming to grips with the fact that it's biblical for me to preach for hours upon hours, you're going to have to deal with it. Maybe you should think about not falling asleep in church. You know, that's an application of this story, I suppose. Um, What do we do with this interesting story? Well, I was thinking about and praying about this story this week. I started thinking about sleep as a metaphor for spiritual apathy in our lives. And a couple of passages came to mind as I was considering that. Sleep as a metaphor for apathy. First passage is found in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 6 through 8, where after writing about Christ's impending return, Paul challenges the church in Thessalonica with these words. He says, So be on your guard, not asleep like the others. Stay alert and clear-headed. Night is the time where people sleep and drinkers get drunk. But let us who live in the light be clear-headed, protected by the armor of faith and love, and wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. That's the first passage. second passage is found in Ephesians, in Ephesians 5, verse 14, where Paul writes, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. You know, for some of us, um, quite honestly, it's not sleeping through church that's the problem. And it's not sleeping through the preacher that's the problem either. It's that for some of us in the room, we're sleeping on God. We've been so distracted by the world's attractions, distractions, that we're basically now finding ourselves, in a sense, just kind of sleepwalking our way through the Christian life. We're apathetic, frankly, towards the things of God, towards His presence, towards the reality of sin in our life and in the world, towards the needs of others and how God might be calling us to meet those needs, and we're just like zombies, sleepwalking through our days. Indifferent towards the presence of God in our life, apathetic towards his calling on us. That's why Paul says what he says in that first passage. He says, be on your guard. Be alert, not asleep like the others, because when you're asleep spiritually, you're vulnerable to spiritual attack, right? Defenseless against it. And when you're asleep, you're not doing anything. You're inactive. You're not doing anything for Jesus. You're not being used by Jesus for his purposes in the world. So he says, be on your guard. Be alert, not asleep like the others. Stay alert and clear-headed, Paul says. Or in other words, I think, be prayerful. Be prayerful. He says in other places, to pray without ceasing. Talk to God throughout the day. Have an ongoing conversation with him. Just like when you're driving late at night and it's dark out, you're tired, you've got people in the vehicle with you, and you can start feeling the fog of sleep come over you, what do you do? You should say to the person in the passenger seat with you, stay awake with me. Talk to me. Let's roll down the windows. Turn on the music. Keep me alert. Let's have a conversation. In a way, that's what Paul is saying to us when he says to pray without ceasing or to stay alert and clear-headed. It's to have an ongoing conversation with God, don't fall asleep 
on God. Don't fall asleep at the wheel. Verse 8, let us who live in the light be clear-headed again, Paul says, protected by the armor of faith and love and wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. Or, in other words, awake, clear-headed, awake to what God is longing to do in us and through us in the world, shielded and protected by what Jesus has already accomplished for us on the cross. He's saying, don't give in to the apathy and indifference of our world. Don't sleepwalk your way through the Christian life. But be awake, alert to the things of God in your life and in the world. Be awake and alert to the needs of others around you and how God might want to use you to meet those needs. Don't sleepwalk your way through the Christian life. And then that second passage, right? Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead like Eutychus did. And Christ will give you light. He says, wake up. Wake up. That's what we do. That's what we do. We set the alarm, right? To wake ourselves up. And to wake ourselves up to the presence of God around us. To be prayerful, ongoing conversation with him. To wake up to the needs of others around us. And how God might want to use us to meet those needs. Even when we don't feel like meeting those needs. Even when we're tired. To wake up to the reality of the spiritual battle that is raging on around us in the spiritual realm that we can't see. Wake up, O sleeper, Paul is saying, and rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. He will show you which way to go. He will illuminate your path for you as you commit to being awake to the presence of Jesus. So how do we do that? How do we wake up to God's presence? It starts, I think, by engaging in some really intentional practices. Spending time on our own in in the scriptures, in prayer. Being intentional daily to pray, to have conversations throughout the day with Jesus. I've heard of some people who set an alarm on their watch throughout the day at 9 a.m., 12, and 3. Just to stop for one minute and to pray. To make yourself alert to God's presence in your day. God, would you show me where you're at work in people's lives? Would Would you help me to sense your presence throughout this day? Don't let me just sleepwalk my way through this day spiritually. To help me to see and sense your presence comes down to just being alert, mindful, clear-headed of God's presence in our daily lives. So here's a question I want us to consider. Um, Where have I fallen asleep in God's presence in our life or in the world? I want us to actually take some time to ask Jesus this question. Sincerely in prayer, like not just to think about it ourselves, but to ask Jesus, Jesus, where have I or am I asleep on you and your presence in my life? Maybe it has to do with some sin stuff going on in your life that you're just ignoring, just sweeping under the rug, falling asleep, so you don't want to deal with it. Maybe it's the need, some needs in people's lives that God's maybe calling you to meet. Maybe it's just you've been undisciplined. You've become unaware of God's presence in your life because you're not attuning yourself regularly his presence. Ask Jesus, where have I fallen asleep to you in your presence in my life or in the world? And then just ask Jesus graciously to wake you up. Say, Jesus, wake me up. Wake me up. Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will give you light. Jesus, wake me up from my slumber. Wake me up from my place of sleep and being unalert to your presence. Let's take a few moments 
and just consider these questions. Pray these questions. Ask Jesus these questions and just be open to where he may be leading and guiding you this morning as we consider this in our own journey. Take a few moments to prayerfully ask these questions. Lord Jesus, we confess that um, there have been times where we have fallen asleep on you. Where you've been at work in us, around us, in other people's lives, but we haven't noticed, we haven't seen it because we're too focused on ourselves, distracted by the things of this world. Um, just not attuned your presence in your life that work in us and around us. We confess as well that we've been asleep sometimes to the reality of sin in our life, the impact of it, the impact it has on our families, the impact it has on our souls, on our minds, on our hearts, on our relationships, on our relationship with you. We've justified ourselves and not been open or humble to your teaching and correction. Correction. And we've been asleep when we've looked at the world and seen the need and just shrugged our shoulders and gone, well, like, what do we do about that? There's nothing we can do. We've been asleep at times. We've missed seeing you at work, being used by you in our world. We do pray, God, that you would wake us up this morning. Wake us up to the reality of the spiritual realm, the battle that we're in. Wake us up to the reality of your presence and your power. Wake us up to the reality of sin, the impact it can have, how seriously you, you invite us to take it, you ask us to take it. Wake us up to you, to the gospel, to the cross, to the resurrection, to what it is that you've done for us. We've become so numb towards it at times, God. We need your spirit to Awaken us again and remind us in a new and fresh way who you are, what you've done in our lives. So we look to you to do that. We say, Jesus, wake us up. Jesus, wake us up this morning. Would you wake us up? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, thanks for tuning in. We're back next week with more of our Acts of the Apostles series. Don't forget to check out our website, thegatheringottawa.com, and tune in next week to The Gathering Ottawa's Message Podcast. <laughs>